Today we're considering 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 58. Obviously, this is an essential text in our overall understanding of the events surrounding Jesus' return. This is the chapter on the resurrection of believers on the final day. And as we'll see, our resurrection is linked with Jesus' resurrection every step of the way. But heads up, we're parachuting right into the middle of one of the most complex and important chapters in the whole New Testament. And we're going to start with verses 21 and 22. Uh, we need to understand the surrounding context a bit first, but I'm, I'm thinking if we get the theology that's behind these two verses, 21 and 22, just get it at the outset, then we'll be okay moving ahead. It's a very dense, complex chapter. Uh, so look at First cha- Corinthians 15, 21. Paul says, For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So this gets to the very heart, obviously, of our salvation, the very heart of the meaning, the biblical theological significance of Jesus' resurrection. Think of it this way. There are scientific principles by which God governs the universe. We have the law of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics. But did we vote for any of those laws? Did we say, yes, Lord, that sounds like a good idea to me? No. God, the creator, just decreed. He decreed that energy cannot be created or destroyed in an isolated system, right? It's just the way that things are. God made it that way. But there are also theological principles and laws by which God governs the cosmos. And one of those principles is that a given individual at specific moments in salvation history may represent more than just themselves. They, they may act as representative heads, as a federal heads. So when we consider the Old Covenant, here's a question, who was the representative head for the nation of Israel? It was the king. <laughs> and the king in Jerusalem, he represents the people uh, of God to God. And if the king is wicked, then the people of Israel are punished because the king is their representative. And the Bible tells us that both Adam and Jesus are representative heads. Uh, In fact, all human beings are either in Adam or in Christ. One of those two men represents you. Uh, You are in their column. We are in their column. And you may not have voted for that law, you know, this federal headship law, but that's just the way it is. Just as a particle attracts every other particle in the universe with the force directly proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between their centers. (laughs) That's my Wikipedia research right there. This is God's universe. It's just how things are. And all of us begin, all of us begin life in Adam. No one begins life in Christ. And our federal head, Adam, was a rebel. You've heard the Motown classic by the Temptations, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Good song. Uh, Well, that's not the half of it. Papa was a cosmic anarchist. And through our first father's anarchy, through his rebellion, we too are considered to be rebels by God. Because God considers Adam to be our representative. We're in his column. So, what sinful human beings need is a new representative. Someone who is himself human. Someone who has never rebelled against God. Someone who has obeyed all God's commandments. Someone who can take our guilt upon himself and be punished in our place. While at the same time crediting to our accounts his perfection, his obedience. And the Apostle Paul talks about that relationship, probably most famously, in Romans 5. But 
what Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we also need someone with whom we are united in their death for our sin, but also united in their resurrection life. Because more than just representing people, hear this, Adam and Jesus introduce contrasting salvation historical realities. Death came through Adam. Resurrection life came through Jesus. At one time, there was no death. Adam introduced that reality. At one time, there was no resurrection life. Jesus introduced that reality. That's how we have to think of this. Verse 21, For since death came through a human being... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a human being. And Paul's point is that no matter which camp we're part of, what that person introduces to all the people under his federal headship is inevitable. It's going to happen. In Adam, death is inevitable. It's inevitable because we all share in the humanity and sinfulness of the man who is our representative. But Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, reversed the process that that was begun in Adam. And if Jesus is our federal head, if we're united to Jesus through his spirit by faith, then our sharing in the resurrection from the dead is equally inevitable. After all, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's one of the glorious, that's just a glorious gospel jewel right there. Uh, Jesus' resurrection is God's pledge to the world that all who are in him, who are in Jesus, will be raised from the dead too, that there is a full harvest to come. Verse 22, for as in Adam, all die. It's inevitable. So in Christ, all be made alive. It's inevitable. Therefore, it's not possible for the Corinthians to say that there is no resurrection from the dead. Because you look back at 12b, that's what some are saying. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? No, no, no. Such a resurrection is necessitated by Christ's resurrection. But that's a truth that some in the Corinthian church don't understand. Some people in the church don't believe in a future resurrection of the dead. And so Paul goes to great lengths in this chapter to warn them that if there is no resurrection, then there's no Christian faith at all. You may as well say there's no cross. It's that important. Everything is up for grabs. Christianity is shattered into a thousand pieces if there is no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, Paul argues, first and foremost, that means Christ has not been raised. See, he actually argues backwards. (laughs) Verse 14, and if Jesus has not been raised, the apostles' preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. The apostles are false witnesses who misrepresent God. We are still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are eternally lost. And we of all people are to be most pitied. Questions about that? Okay. Now, exactly what the Corinthians were thinking in their denial of the resurrection of the dead is difficult to piece together. Uh, But for this chapter to make contextual sense, we need to make a stab at it. We need to try, because much of what the apostle writes in this passage is actively dismantling their their unbelieving pagan worldview. Uh, We know from other chapters in this book that some of the Corinthians were strutting around like peacocks, thinking... All things are lawful for us. Everything is permitted. The Spirit has lifted us above the merely earthly and the fleshy. Uh, So what Paul calls sexual immorality, that's of no consequence to spiritual people like us. Uh, There's a distance between the deeds done in the physical body and the spiritual level of life that we've attained to. 
And all the commentators I read believe that there's a material slash spiritual dualism at work in the Corinthians thinking. Uh, a, a Neoplatonic dualism. Material stuff, the flesh, that's bad. The immaterial, the spirit, ah, that's good. And almost certainly, this prejudice against the physical body is lurking behind the Corinthians' denial of the resurrection. That's probably where it's coming from. That's why Paul had to write chapter 15. That's why they're saying this. Because the gospel has not adequately influenced the Corinthians' pagan, neoplatonic worldview. And so the whole concept of the resurrection of dead corpses, which is part and parcel of the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel itself, that's thought to be by some in this church an atrocious, barbaric doctrine. It's just disgusting. Corpses being resurrected. No, no, no. Just ethereal spirits. That's, that's what we want. That's good. That's a good thing. And so Paul needs to make a couple points very clear to the Corinthians. And he makes it clear to the Corinthians. And so he makes it clear to us as well. Specifically, Paul wants to make clear that the resurrection, now hear this, is a physical resurrection. There is a one-to-one correlation between the dead body that's buried in the ground and the resurrected physical body of the Christian that rises from the grave, united to its spirit when Jesus returns. Or the one-to-one correlation between the physical body of the living Christian that they possess on that day when Jesus returns, which is transformed in the twinkling of an eye into an immortal, incorruptible body. There's a one-to-one correlation, and it's physical. Brothers and sisters, hear this. Understand this good news and praise God for it. We won't be living in the afterlife as ethereal spirits. We will be physically resurrected, living in a transformed body, a body patterned after the resurrection body of our Lord Jesus. So when you're reading those texts in the Gospels of our resurrected Lord, the things that he's doing, what his body's like, you're seeing a one-to-one correlation with us as well. Um, There's really one theme, one glorious, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered theme dominating everything that follows now in this text we're going to be looking at. It is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our present bodies must be transformed. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. That's the most important part of the whole thing. I just <laughs> Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Our present bodies must be transformed. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Everything we're going to read now flows from that. So leave your hand out, point number one. The nature of the resurrection body, verses 35 to 49. But some, this is verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? This is your PDF that was sent out under your announcement email. Okay. How would you answer that question? All right. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? Has, has anybody ever asked you that? And I want to push us a bit on this, guys. Um, Christian, have your gospel proclamation to lost sinners at work, at school, your family, your neighbors, ever reached the point where you've been moved beyond Christ crucified and resurrected for sin? I mean, that's, that's step one. And that's, I would say, have you got to that point? I pray to God you have, but have you, have you got actually speaking to people of um, the cross, the resurrection of him, and then moving to speak of the forgiven sinner's certain hope of the resurrection from the grave in a transformed physical body? 
Have you ever talked to somebody with the transformed physical body that, that Christians will receive on that last day? Have you ever talked about that with anybody in your life? I hope so. Because that hope is just as linked to the gospel as the forgiveness of our sins. Our physical resurrection bodies are part of what God will accomplish in consequence of what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus for sin as we live in the new heavens and new earth. We, we can't just be talking about getting into heaven to unbelievers and are living there forever as disembodied spirits. I mean, that's what they're going to be naturally thinking. And, and, and God help us. I think a lot of Christians think that way too. Is people don't think about the resurrection. Um, as we'll see later, this shatters the hope of the gospel into a thousand pieces. If there isn't a physical resurrection, the gospel is lost. Lost. We need to be faithful. We need to be biblical in our gospel proclamation. And as we can see, based on Paul's response in verse 36, there's obviously an unbelieving incredulity in the tone of this question in verse 35. How are the dead raised? What, what kind of body will they come? Verse 36. How foolish. You foolish person, how can you ask that question when the God of the Bible sits on his throne? The God who is our creator, our sovereign Lord. And, and to help explain things, Paul gives two analogies. And this being an agrarian culture, his first analogy is related to seeds. And if you look at your handout, you can see where Paul's going with this. Um, analogies of seeds and bodies. The analogy of the seed illustrates from everyday experience that one living thing through death can have two modes of existence. The analogy of the seed illustrates from everyday experience that one living thing through death can have two modes of existence. That's a, that's a real theological profundity there. Um, so Paul's emphasizing both continuity here, obviously, but also transformation. And he's going to link this then to resurrection bodies. Verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. New life comes from death. In one sense, death is the precondition for new life. And Paul explains, verse 37, when, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. So if you want to grow an apple tree, what you don't do is take a full-grown apple tree and just shove it into the dirt, right? <laughs> you, you first, we first plant, we sow an apple seed in the ground, and then that seed must die, and only then will a tree appear. Now, this is Farming 101. First, the seed is buried in the earth, it dies, and out of death, a new expression of life springs forth. In other words, Paul is saying, you're asking, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? Simply look at the way God has arranged the natural order in plant life. In the everyday occurrence of the seed, you have the evidence to answer your question. And his point is, there is continuity and transformation between the seed and the plant. Continuity and transformation. And if God has so arranged and ordered the natural realm this way, then why is it so difficult to imagine that our sovereign God, creator, our Lord, is able to transform our present body, which will be buried in the earth, it will die and be buried, and transform that into a resurrection body. It's the same thing, basically, he's saying. It's entirely reasonable. When a dead Christian is buried in the earth, God's purposes are not thwarted by death. As with the seed, what is sown in death is brought forth in new life.
Verse 37, what you sow, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now Paul moves into his second analogy to better describe for the Corinthians the nature of the resurrection body. Look at your handout. Just, there's mind-blowing concepts on every side. Just keep this as your interpretive pole star. The analogy of the kinds of bodies, 38 to 44, is intended to illustrate the phenomenon of bodies being adapted to their existence. Bodies being adapted to their existence. So, for example, there is a specific kind of body designed for God, by God for human existence as well as for animal existence. Verse 49, not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. Oh, that makes sense, right? A blue whale has a, has a body that's ill-adapted to life in the jungle. Neither does a sparrow have a body adapted to life at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. But God gives it a body as he has determined. One that's appropriate and adapted to its God-ordained existence. But there are also different kinds of bodies, depending on whether a created thing is designed for a celestial existence or an earthly existence. So verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. Each body has its purpose, its design, and glory. And by analogy, if this is how God has ordered the natural realm, then why is it difficult to imagine God doing this in the case of the resurrection body? And this is very important. And just as God creates every animal with its own kind of body, adapted to its own kind of existence, so God makes our resurrection bodies adapted to a future resurrection existence. Right? That's the whole point of what he's arguing here. And, and man, do I ever get excited just thinking about that. What a glorious concept this is. Uh, we, we, just, we can't let our imaginations go too far ahead of us, um, beyond the boundaries of Scripture, but this, this is something that Christians really need to consider. A star is celestial, right? It's not meant for earthly existence, but a star is ideally suited for life in space. A fish cannot cope with living in the sky like a bird can, but it's ideally suited for life in the sea. In the same way, our physical bodies, ideal for this earthly existence in spite of their mortality, will be useless in the perfection of God's kingdom. We'd be like a fish flopping around the Sahara Desert. So what needs to happen then is for our bodies to be buried when their work is done because from that raw material, from that seed, God is going to produce a spiritual body, verse 44, a body perfectly suited for inheriting the consummated kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth. And how does God achieve this? Through the gospel. Right? God decrees that by faith, through the Holy Spirit, his elect will be united with, united to his crucified son, raised with Christ in the power of his resurrection, and transformed into his likeness. That's how it happens. God decrees that by faith, through the Holy Spirit, his elect will be united to his crucified son, raised with Christ in the power of his resurrection, and transformed into his likeness. Which means we'll be just as suited and adapted to bodily life in the new heavens and new earth as 
the eternal Son himself, as Jesus himself, our bodies will be just as well adapted as his body is. The nature of his resurrected body, his supernatural flesh, will be ours. Verse 41, the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. And then Paul sets up a series of contrasts in verse 42 to 44 between the body sown and the body raised. Now hear this, the body sown is a natural body, right? The body sown is perishable, it's subject to decay. It's sown in dishonor. Look at it how you will. There is nothing honorable about a decaying corpse as it's being put into a grave. It's sown in weakness. In fact, the dead body is the very symbol of powerlessness, isn't it? But what do, you, do you see what Paul is doing? Do you see the point that he's making here? If, if for all these reasons, beloved, our present bodies could not begin to cope with life in the, in the, in the fullness of the kingdom of God then something needs to change, <laughs> right? Our present body is in bondage to decay. This is a corruptible, natural body. And, and there's no way for this corruption to be halted. This isn't something doctors can fix. This decaying, corruptible body can only be buried and then transformed by God into something else. Verse 44, the body sown is a natural body. The body raised is spiritual. Spiritual how? Not ethereal, immaterial, and ghostly. Now, these words, natural and spiritual, describe the essential characteristics of one body at different periods of salvation history. Your body at different periods of salvation history. There's natural and there's spiritual. Right now, our bodies are natural bodies. They're earthly bodies. They belong to the present age. But the body raised on the last day is spiritual. It's been adapted for that final consummated state dominated by the Spirit of God. It's raised imperishable. No corruption, no decay, ever. It's spiritual. A body that will never die. A body that will live forever. It is raised in glory, in honor. It's raised in power, which means our resurrection body will not be limited as our present body is. Our resurrection body, fitted for the new age, will be characterized by power, the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Our new body will be the result of the Spirit's work as well as his eternal vessel. You will be infilled with the Holy Spirit for all of eternity in a resurrection body, just like Jesus' body. But there's more. There's much more. Paul wants to move his argument forward, and so he puts on what I call his eschatological sunglasses, right? When we put on sunglasses, everything in our field of vision is tinted a brownish-gold hue. In the same way, when the Apostle Paul looks at the world, when he interprets and interacts with all of God's reality, he does so through redemptive, historical, eschatological lenses, sunglasses, which give all the world its proper biblical hue. That's how Paul looks at life. That the drama of God's salvation as it unfolds over all of biblical history is always, always, always before Paul's eyes. And so with these lenses over his eyes now, the Apostle Paul looks back to the very beginning of human history in the Garden of Eden with Adam. And still wearing those sunglasses, he then looks to the end of human history, to these last days that have been launched through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And through God's Spirit, Paul makes a salvation historical contrast now between Adam and Jesus Christ. This is what he tells us. Look at verse 44. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot there, right? That's glorious stuff. And this goes back to what I was saying before about the salvation historical link between Adam and Jesus and how every person is either in Adam or in Jesus. He is our federal head, one of those two. Either Adam is our federal head, he is our representative, or Jesus is. And that biblical truth is the very foundation of all those verses that I just read. If you don't understand federal headship, you're not going to get those verses. So get your hand out. The contrast Paul is making between Adam and Jesus at this point is in terms of the nature of their humanity. Adam, by virtue of creation, is of earth. Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection, is of heaven. And just as believers have shared the earthly body of the first man, Adam, so also will we bear the heavenly body of the second man, Jesus, who was resurrected. Uh, that's our interpretive pole star, right? What kind of body will Christians have in the resurrection? Precisely the same body as our federal head, the resurrected Jesus. That's what he's saying. Verse 45, so it is written, Genesis 2, 7, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Adam was given a certain kind of body at creation, a natural body, a body of the earth, a body created from dust, which, as a result of sin, is subject to death and decay. And since Adam is the federal head of the old creation, since he is our natural representative, then we bear his likeness in our fallen state. But Jesus is unlike Adam. There's a contrast here. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. He's not only alive, Jesus gives life. He gives resurrection life to all who are in him. Our first representative can't do that, right? Only our second. Our first representative brings in the reality of death, right? Our second one brings in the reality of resurrection life. And the order in which believers experience the natural body and then the spiritual body mirrors the order in which Adam and Jesus appeared in history, right? First one, then the other. Verse 46, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. See, it makes perfect sense. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Again, all whom Adam represents are as he is. They have a body suited only for this present existence. They have a body suited only for this present existence. And as Adam died, so like him, all who are in Adam, so at death, a corruptible body that is of the earth, of earth. So friend, uh, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone for salvation, God's message to you from his word is abandon all hope of ever having a body raised imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, 
It's not going to happen. All who are in Adam keep their body of death. There is no transformation. And yes, we read in other texts of Scripture that the bodies of unbelievers will be raised on the last day. And yes, in physical form. But it won't be a body adapted to the splendors of the new heavens and new earth. It will be adapted to an environment which inflicts eternal torment. As the unbeliever's physical body, physical body is cast into hell. But the bodies of resurrected believers will be like Christ's, fitted to live with him forever in glory. Verse 48b. And as, as is the heavenly man, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven, Christians. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, that is, supernatural, glorified, imperishable, immortal. We'll have resurrection bodies just like Jesus' resurrection body. Even though the kingdom Jesus has inaugurated is already come, and even though we already are new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, yet we still must await the future when our lowly bodies will be transformed, fitted for the condition of the consummated state. So he says in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. These dying bodies, these mortal, corruptible bodies, they cannot inherit what will last forever. That's the point. And this is what some in the Corinthian church have failed to understand. Now, perhaps someone might be tempted to say, Man alive, why all this fuss over a physical body? Who needs it? Right? Who needs a physical body, right? Just let it go. I'm more than happy to be a disembodied spirit floating around in an ethereal, heavenly world, right? After all, all that really matters are the spiritualities of love and joy and peace and righteousness and goodness and truth. Why all this fuss? over arms and legs and hands and feet and hair and eyes and ears and tongues. You know, it seems so earthly. It's so fleshy. Just, just give me Jesus forever. God forbid. God forbid. Never say that. Never think that. That's a horrendous thing to be thinking. No Christian who understands the gospel, no Christian who understands the whole biblical story of God's redemption would ever want to believe such a thing as that. We need to take a page from Paul's book because Paul, because he's always wearing his salvation historical sunglasses, he realizes something that the Corinthians and many Christians today have forgotten. The God of redemption is also the God of creation. I just want you to highlight that in your mind, right? The God of redemption is also the God of creation. And in creation, as Genesis 1 stresses repeatedly, God made everything good, including physical Material reality. But due to the disobedience of the first man, Adam, sin and death have now entered the world. And what's crucial to stress, since sin and death affect both physical and spiritual reality, so redemption, if redemption is to be complete and God is to be all in all, redemption must affect both the physical and the spiritual realm. The dead in Christ must be raised bodily. Our earthly bodies must be transformed. It's not just here's the optional extra. It's like it must happen because God's plan of salvation is only complete when those things happen. It's incomplete if we don't rise from death in physical bodies. 
Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, that is human nature as we know it, mortal, perishable, sin-stained, decaying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. But we will all be changed. See that? Changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The old body will become a new body in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet when Jesus returns. And there are so many texts that tie in with this, but turn quickly to Romans 8, 19. I apologize again, we're in full lecture mode here. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And, and guys, our, our body fits into that category of physical creation, right? And if God is to be all in all, if he's to be supreme over everything, everywhere, forever, then sin and death must be destroyed. And for death to be destroyed completely, the dead in Christ must rise. Not to have a resurrection body, not uh, to be content with a disembodied afterlife in an ethereal spiritual world, at the very root of that gospel-shattering picture of eternity, and this is just as true with us as it is for the Corinthians, is the trivialization of the reality of both sin and death. It trivializes it. Do you ever hear people waxing philosophical about death? Have you ever heard someone say, Oh, mom had a good life. She lived 80 years. And that's well and good. But then they say, and after all, death is part of the natural process. That's certainly not the Bible's view of death. It's certainly not how God views death. And it's certainly not how the Christian views death. Death is part of the curse. Genesis chapter 3. Death is an abnormality. Death is an intrusion into God's good, good universe. Death is a robber. Death is the just penalty for our sin and our rebellion against God. Death is an enemy to be defeated. He is, it is the last enemy. They've taken it down now, but about you know, 12 years ago or so, on the southeast side of Jarvis Street Baptist Church, there used to be a huge sign of Romans 6.23. It said, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'm always glad to be reminded of both those realities. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We must look at that big, big picture. We too, along with Paul, we must put on our salvation historical sunglasses the drama of God's salvation as it unfolds over all the biblical history from Genesis to Revelation is to ever be before our eyes. That's how we have to be thinking. If God is truly to redeem his people and this world, if God's plan of salvation is to truly be complete, then not only must Christ be raised 
as a demonstration that sin has been dealt with in his cross and death has been defeated, but we too must be raised with him. We who have been united with him, right? And if we let that go, guys, we let go of the gospel. Because without Christ's resurrection, without our resurrection in him, there is no salvation. None. And if we do not rise from the grave, God's good creation is not restored. And God's plan of salvation does not encompass all that sin has affected, infected, both the spiritual and physical realities. That is why all those who die in Christ and all of us who are alive when Christ returns will be, must be, raised and transformed. Those who are alive when Christ returns will be transformed. Verse 51. Those who are dead will come out of their graves transformed. Verse 52. It must be so. It must be so. For it is only then that what Christ inaugurated in his first coming will be consummated in his second. Death itself, the last enemy, finally, definitively, will be destroyed. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then, and only then, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Not a limited pseudo-victory over death. That's what a disembodied, spiritual, post-mortem existence would be. A limited pseudo-victory over death. No, our bodily resurrection on the last day signifies absolute victory over death. Our bodily resurrection signifies the destruction of death, the death of death. Then the victory taunt may be sung. I don't know how you would do it, but you know how kids go, da, 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 like that's a taunting kind of song. That's what, how you would do verse 55. You'd say it in that kind of voice. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Therefore, Paul concludes, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Guys, you were very patient. That was a lot of just me talking. So I can open this up now for questions. If you want to relate this to other things that we were looking at in our eschatology class, go right ahead. Clarification? Nothing at all? Quinn, you got to have something, man. <laughs> I know you. <laughs> kind of one general question here. So just on the spiritual body, um, the ISKI footnote says that my spiritual body, Paul does not mean an immaterial body, but a body animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yes. Which, yeah. I mean, makes sense, but could we not say that we right now are also animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit? So it needs to be like, I think the definition needs to be a little more than that. Yeah, I, I, gave, a, I gave a fuller definition in my, yeah. in my talk here, but... Yeah, because you would want to be saying, look, we are spiritual in that sense, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but he, the contrast is really between the natural body with Adam and then the resurrection body connected with Jesus Christ with that. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's almost in a way it was like, well, why is Paul talking about spiritual? It's like spiritual. Like you'd think he could have maybe picked a better word because yeah. it's, it's instantly, you instantly start thinking ethereal. You know, it's like, it's, it's immaterial, ethereal. You know, but it's, it's not that. It's, it's, a, it's a contrast of ages, you know. 
an age that Jesus Christ is introduced through his resurrection body. Okay, guys, well, next week there is no um, church here. We're actually having a joint service with Mount Pleasant, right? So we're not going to be having a sermon or Sunday school class. Uh, then the week after that, we'll, it all starts up again, Lord willing. And so we'll be looking at the last um, sermon in Ecclesiastes next week. But also, we'll be moving on here to the Day of Judgment. I think that's going to be the next one. And then after that, it's the new heavens and new earth, and then we're done. Just one final thing. I said it before. In your, in your gospel proclamation, though, guys, get to the resurrection. Don't just stop at the cross and forgiveness of sin. You have to get to the resurrection. You have to.